Hello, everyone, and welcome to the ProGov Podcast, a monthly podcast exploring policies and tools for progressive local governance with leaders from policy research institutes around the United States. The ProGov Podcast is brought to you by ProGov21.org, a free resource and public good for local legislatures, policymakers, and advocates. ProGov21 is a fully searchable digital archive of thousands of progressive local and state policies and tools for their effective use. I'm your host, Gabriella Hartlob, and joining the podcast today is Gordon Goodwin from the Government Alliance on Race and Equity. Gordon Goodwin is the Senior Director of GARE, the Government Alliance on Race and Equity, a national network of governments working together to achieve racial equity and advance opportunities for all. Gordon, can you tell me about the Government Alliance on Race and Equity and the work that you at the network do? The Government Alliance on Race and Equity is a national network of practitioners and leaders in the public sector, people who are working in government every day, largely the employees, as well as some elected officials who are moving the work of racial equity forward by using tools and resources, as well as organizing in order to have the work of racial equity done. And they're doing that so that we have better working government for all of us. But in particular, they do that by focusing on those communities that have historically been left behind or prevented from participating in the promises and the protections of government. And knowing the history of government and race is important about this because there is a very long history of government actually focusing on race as the single factor, uh, race as well as gender, uh, as well as the language you speak at home, your religion. But in particular, race in the history of our country has been foundational for uh, how we have decided who would receive the full protections and benefits of government. And that is why we focus on government. And we talk about race explicitly and ask government to do that so that we can actually begin to make progress and ensure that everybody gets what they need from government. So later on, we're going to talk more about some of the featured policies from GARE, but do you have any tools or resources that our listeners should keep an eye out for? The one huge contribution that GARE has made to the field is about the approach for how government begins to do this work. So the way we create change in government is to be able to visualize how our society and our economy and our civic spaces, how it would be different if we weren't consistently measuring racial disparities on a regular basis, and if we were actually able to eliminate those so that we had full participation and full benefit for everyone who lives in our society. So visualizing how our society can be different, normalizing the conversation about race, and understanding that when we're talking about race and racism, We really need to expand the conversation more beyond individualized racism, which is hurtful and keeps people from participating, but tends to be where we focus a lot of our attention and really start to take a look at structures, structural racism, and then also institutional racism. And we focus on institutional racism, which we define as policies, practices, procedures, protocols that tend to work well for most white people, tend not to work as well for communities of color uh, and immigrant communities. And 
while it may not be intended that that is the case, a lot of the tools that we use in government, uh, like complaint-based systems and minimum thresholds uh, for income for participation or maximum thresholds, oftentimes work to contribute to racialized outcomes. So normalizing the conversation about race and grounding it in a racial equity analysis, organizing within government, across departments, and with people in government to use the tools, racial equity analysis, as well as racial equity action plans, uh, and then operationalizing it so that we are moving that work forward and grounding it in some way that we're measuring that people are better off. So the results, that's really important to what we do is that Government can make changes, but unless people's lives are measurably better off as a result, it may not make any difference. So what happens when policymakers and government officials have a shared understanding of systemic and institutional racism? What happens when that occurs is that we begin to understand a couple of key things. Number one, when we start taking a look at our governmental programs, we start asking the question, why do we have these programs, right? What is supposed to be the universal benefit for having a transportation system? Why do we need to have government involved in education? How should everyone in our society benefit as a result of having water systems that bring fresh water to our homes and take sewage water away? Public health, safety, and welfare is all over government all day, every day. And yet many times we look at programs and we look at the situations people are in and we aren't asking a broader question, which is how is it that government is actually fulfilling its obligation here? So having a real clear understanding about what the public benefit should be, then having an understanding about who is not actually enjoying that benefit, who is not receiving the protections of government, and then expanding our analysis to understand what are some of the root causes, the root causes that are contributing to why we're seeing generational disparities in family uh, household net assets, in family health and well-being, in every important factor, including life expectancy, including infant mortality all of these really important measures for life. Why is that happening? And in many cases, people tend to focus on the individuals and try to assign some level of individual blame, if you will, for why people are in the circumstances they're in without really fully accounting for the significant long-term generational impact of a consistent level of racial exclusion that governments absolutely enforced through its laws. And so if you're not willing to take that into account, then you're going to be developing policies that tend to focus on people. You're not going to start taking a look at the circumstances that people are in based upon the fact that they've been excluded from fully participating. And you're probably not going to include the people who are closest to the problem in helping you understand where some of those barriers still are. Because even though we change laws to make sure that racial discrimination was officially not the law of the land, uh, we still have used a lot of practices that tend to not fully recognize the situations that people are in, which tend to treat them as if everybody is the same or similarly situated, but doesn't really account for. They tend to be one-size-fits-all solutions that do not account for the situations that people are in and don't allow for any flexibility. 
and how they're going to be assisted. And that's why they tend not to work and tend not to be used. And there are also some very real barriers as to whether or not people feel they can use those programs. Sometimes we invent those barriers. So if you start thinking about some of the efforts that are underway in our country now to begin to ensure that people who have served their time in a penal system can actually be welcomed back into society with a place to live, with an opportunity to be employed, with the opportunity to vote and fully exercise you know, their democratic rights. That's an acknowledgement that we're supposed to have a penal system for a reason, and it's supposed to be if you have done your crime and you've done your time, then you're welcomed back into society and can fully participate. And yet, because of over-policing in many of our BIPOC communities and Asian communities, Native communities as well, that has not been the reality. There's been disproportionate enforcement, targeted enforcement against people of color. And that's one of the reasons we end up in prison more often than white people who are performing the same level of wrongs in society, but are under-policed or more likely to have access to representation. Because as we know, you get as much representation in a court as you can afford. So a lot of our system is structured in that way. So how can local governments do the work of racial equity? We ask local governments, number one, to understand their own history of contributions to racial inequity and contributions to racial equity. If you're not willing to come to terms with understanding that if we're going to do this work, we need to understand that even though good people show up to work for government, thinking that they are actually being stewards of the public trust and the public purse, that if they're not taking a look at how the practices that they use, regardless of the policy, but how those practices are being applied and how they may be being applied in ways that actually create barriers for people to participate, that they're not fully doing their job. So number one, being able to be explicit about the fact that race is still playing a role in how well we do in our American society, regardless of what people think about a colorblind society that may be aspirational in terms of what people are thinking, it is not played out in our data. Being able to talk about race at work and to do that for the purposes of understanding who's doing well and who isn't, who's disproportionately represented in the areas of not having access to what they need to do well in our society. You're not going to understand that if you just take a look at the data in the aggregate. You've got to be able to take a look at it and disaggregate it by race, by gender, by language spoken at home, by zip code, so that you have a really good understanding about who's being well-served and who isn't. You're then going to have to understand how to begin crafting some solutions after including the people who are, mo are closest to the problem in helping to understand what that data is saying and what the barriers are so that you get the best solutions. And that, and that oftentimes does not happen because government doesn't often budget for that. Um, and it doesn't often think about that as a step that should be long term. We have things that we do like public meetings that tend to be very short term, tend not to occur in places where people are going to be gathering from communities of color, tend to take place in the middle of the day on a Wednesday <laughs> or maybe on a Thursday evening. 
tend not to be very accommodating for having full participation. And a one-and-done approach to getting community input on problems that have been generational in nature is probably also not going to result in there being any very useful solutions. It's got to be a longer-term approach. Budgeting for that, having the infrastructure for it, having the relationships with other community-based organizations and associations, and organizing at the community level to get people to understand that they can participate and should participate and trust is a longer process, right? So if you want good policy and practice, you're going to have to be able to incorporate those pieces into your work. And that is a really big change for government. That's a transformational change. How does GARE help local governments do the work of racial equity? The GARE Network uh, is a network of practitioners and leaders who are doing the work every day. GARE provides some of the tools, and then the network actually helps to refine those tools. They're using the tools in practice. GARE provides some of the broader thinking about how we could get the work done and what structures need to be in place internally, the infrastructure for change within government, the fact that if you don't have a racial equity action plan with resources that are attached to it and a time frame and people's initials on it for who's going to move things forward, you're probably less likely to make any progress towards using the racial equity tools that are going to get you different results. You're less likely to engage community if you are not, you know, following the time frame and mapping that out. So the racial equity action plans, the racial equity tool process, and a framework for how we make change in organizations, uh, visualize, normalize, organize, and operationalize are ways that all GARE jurisdictions are applying those pieces to make change. Now, the other piece that's happening, of course, is elevating the work of racial equity to public notice so that we're having some public-facing commitments. You're probably aware that starting in Milwaukee, I believe, with Milwaukee County, I think they were the first county in the nation to actually use the American Public Health Association's moniker of racism is a public health crisis, right? And that was copied across the nation several times. Well, it's one thing to have that as sort of a public facing piece. It's another thing to actually begin to hire people and to assign resources to ensure that if you acknowledge that it is a crisis, that we're doing something inside of government to address that crisis and that we're going to have a longer term commitment because that's what this is. It's not a project or an initiative, right? It's a longer term commitment for service excellence so that everybody's included and everybody benefits. Can you talk to us more about the racial equity toolkit that GARE has released? What information and tools does this manual provide and kind of what are your hopes for the usage? The toolkit has been in existence for at least since 2015. And the way that jurisdictions have been using it is that they are applying that process to collect data about how they're delivering services, about how they are interacting with the public. And they're disaggregating that data to understand who is actually participating, who's being touched, who's actually benefiting, and who isn't. And what's important about that is there are many, many governments, you know, cities, counties, that can take a look at their data and they can sort of count who is participating. They have a tendency to take a look at the outputs, right? Well, we can tell you how many people that we served. 
But when you start taking a look at the data that helps you understand how well people are doing in your community, and then you start contrasting that with who you're actually touching and who is being served and who isn't, who's maybe receiving more than what they would normally need to be successful, to have access to recreation and uh, safe streets, things of that nature, with who isn't. You can track that and take a look and co-correlate that with where there are significant numbers of people of color. And the reason for that, of course, is our history, right, of redlining and segregation and locating public amenities and public housing sometimes in places that were least desirable. And so when we start taking a look at that data and figuring out that, okay, we actually have a problem here, we're saying that we should be providing transportation to everyone, but not everyone's participating. What are some of the things that are getting in the way? Fees, you know, stops and timing, right? That's why you're beginning to see some jurisdictions apply some of those tools and come to the conclusion, as Washington, D.C. recently did, as Indianapolis is doing, and several other jurisdictions have done, that maybe we actually need to waive fees for having a public transportation system. If what we really believe is that everyone should be well served, regardless of their ability to pay, right? So they're using the racial equity analysis to understand who they're serving, who they're not serving, what's getting in the way of our best intentions for service. And they're incorporating community participation to help us better understand what some of those barriers are and how we can begin to address those and whether or not people's lives are actually getting better. So it's an entire process that, when you follow it, actually begins to change the way that you do your work and begins to change the way that you think about outcomes, because you're starting to think more about how is everyone actually fully benefiting from this service, and is there anything that's getting in the way of people fully benefiting? You mentioned a couple of these, but are there any more specific cases or examples of local governments doing racial equity work that you'd like to highlight as case studies for our audience? The racial equity tool has been used to help intervene in whether or not there are going to be police stops for broken taillights, for instance, when you start collecting the data on who is most likely to be stopped and whether or not there's some correlation between the race of the driver of a car and the race of a police officer who's stopping someone for a broken taillight, that level of correlation begins to help us understand where there can be some individual implicit bias that's occurring and is affecting how a particular way of doing law enforcement might be over-enforced for and directed at uh, people racially. So you don't know that until you begin to collect the data. And there have been police departments who have been collecting that type of data and beginning to understand where they're seeing differences in the experiences that motorists and pedestrians have when encountering police so that they can begin to change their approach to what's an everyday occurrence. There are changes, you know, I, we live in the snow belt. So uh, in many municipalities, when you have emergency snow towing, you think about who has access to a driveway, who has access to off-street parking, who doesn't. You know, many of the high-rises that were built 
in say the 60s or 70s may have been built with one car uh, parking space per dwelling unit. That's not the case today, right? If you don't have access to a parking space and your car gets towed from the street because it's emergency towing time and it's impounded for a week, the price can go up pretty high. And it can go up to a point where a transportation vehicle that's essential for getting to education, to work, to dialysis, to any number of other things that a family needs, those types of emergencies can actually be the thing that begin to tip a family to the point of having to leave their premises, right? And even more so in these high inflationary times. And the racial equity tool has also been used to ensure that when we're doing budgeting within government, that we are actually thinking about how some of those precious resources, because many local governments are fiscally constrained these days, some by statute, others because, you know, they are growth constrained and they typically, when there's new development, there's new taxation. Where do we invest that new money? Do we invest it in places that have been underinvested in systemically because of our practice of enforcing racialized laws in the past? When you start taking a look at parts of our communities that have been redlined, that not only impacted mortgages, it also impacted public investment and bonding. And so there are many parts of our urban and metropolitan and even rural landscape where there was underinvestment for such a long period of time that things are really in dire straits. So when you have these new resources, why aren't we making sure that everybody has the same level of support for infrastructure, for water, wastewater, uh, for clean air, for parks and recreation and access as we have in the finest parts of our community? So that's the way that that racial equity tool is being used by GEAR members throughout the nation. All right. Well, that's the end of our questions, but we always ask if there's anything that you want to add that we didn't talk about or something else that you want to mention. I guess what I would mention is that we encourage people who are working in government and people who are leaders in government and are elected and appointed officials to really embrace the fact that government should exist to serve all of the people all of the time. And when we start thinking about the history of our government and race, all of our governments and race, we have to acknowledge that we made a contribution to the current racial inequities that we tend to focus on today. And if we're ever going to get to a point where we're going to actually address those and eliminate them, eliminate those disparities, we're going to have to enter into an uncomfortable conversation and a complicated conversation because many of the values that we espouse are aspirational in terms of their practice. As much as we would like to claim a part of our history that sort of burnishes our reputation as a strong nation of individualists who, you know, made it by pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, that often took place at the expense of other people not being able to fully participate at all. And if we're really going to be great, what makes us great is being able to acknowledge that that history exists and that it has impacted our present and that if we can begin to understand how we can change by using these tools, how we can actually make government a net contributor to living up to its promise that everyone deserves to be represented and to participate in our democracy, we can ensure then that we are going to actually be able to achieve a racially diverse and just society because we are preserving democracy. 
we're not going to have democracy without it being a multiracial just democracy. And government taking action now is the key to ensuring that that actually survives. That was Gordon Goodwin, Senior Director of GARE. The Government Alliance on Race and Equity is a national network of governments working to achieve racial equity and advance opportunities for all. Gare, thank you so much for your work, and as always, thank you to the Free Music Archive for providing our soundtrack. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Gabriella Hartlob, and this is the ProGov Podcast. To keep up to date with ProGov21, you can follow us at ProGov21 on Twitter, sign up to receive our newsletter, and check out our constantly expanding, fully searchable online library of progressive policy resources at ProGov21.org.